chapter 21. I believe that God wants to speak to us tonight through his word. Why don't we pray and ask him. Someday, Father, we will realize the severity and the strength of what it is that we're doing right now. For us, Lord, so often it becomes a routine. It's part of our schedule. It's what we do. But Lord, you said that this word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You said that it shall accomplish what you please. You called it a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And so let us tonight, before your word, be as that rock. and Let your word fall upon us as a hammer. We pray, Lord, that it would be impacting, life-changing, and that you would be in it, Father. So give us attention to what you have to say. Make us awake and alive for your purposes and for your cause. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Have you ever experienced delayed consequences? And by that, what I mean is that you thought you got away with something only to find out a little while into the future that maybe not so much. For me, it was my senior year of high school, at least one of the occasions. It was the eve of our senior class picture. It was the night before a half a day, before a weekend. It was going to be a Friday. I had plans to go up and visit my then-girlfriend, Georgia, up at her college in Potsdam. But me and three of my friends had plotted for weeks before about a senior prank that would take place the night before that picture. We had bought a 1982 Dodge Omni. It had no exhaust system at all. It was held together by a thread, and we bought that car for $300. We spray-painted it all the school colors, and we planned at 3 o'clock in the morning we would break into the high school auditorium and drive that 1982 Dodge Omni into the room, lay out, of course, a plastic you know, Matt being careful to not damage the floor. But when they would come in for the picture that Friday morning, there would be that car with deflated tires. And we pulled the plan off impeccably. We had rigged the door so that it would open just by a little bit harder than normal pull. There was no alarm on the door in those days, you know, in Hilton, New York, where there were more cows than cars, you know. But we brought the car in and we left it there and, you know, we didn't get caught and we got away with it. And we thought, this is great. You know, and the next morning we all came in and, you know, sure enough, they canceled the picture. And, you know, we winked at, you know, amongst ourselves, the four of us that pulled off this prank. And we really thought we got away with it until about 11 a.m. And the four of us were rounded up and somebody found out, someone heard. I think somebody was a little bit of a blabbermouth, you know. And we were busted. We got caught. It was worth it. (laughs) But have you ever been in that situation where you thought you got away with something only to find out that maybe not? Well, with God, there's no such thing as a maybe not or a maybe so. With God, you always get found out. And that's what's going to happen in our opening chapter tonight in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, as we uh, pick up into this thing, there's going to be consequences that will come upon Israel for something that had been committed long in their past, and they thought they had gotten away with it. But with God, nothing ever gets left on the to-do list. At the conclusion of our study last week, we came to the end of David's years of reaping from his sin with Bathsheba. He was brought back to Jerusalem after Absalom's attempted coup. Joab, his general, was reestablished as the head of the military because he had murdered Amasa, the man that David appointed to uh, uh, replace him, and he kind of took the job back himself. That's an important detail, as will come up uh, later on in the, in, the, in the narrative, not tonight. But chapter 20 ends with a list of David's second cabinet, or the chief ministers of the reestablished kingdom, now that David has returned from that short exile uh, during the days of Absalom. Now, the last four chapters, what we have before us in our study tonight, are more or less an epilogue to 
the Samuel narrative or to the kingdom or the reign of David. The events cover the better part of a decade and they make up about seven to ten years of his life and ministry. Now they are not chronological in their order necessarily, but it's worth noting this. That for the amount of time that passes here in the latter end of David's reign, there's very little that's written about. There's two events, two psalms that are recorded, and a list of David's mighty men. So all in all, this is a relatively quiet season of David's life. This last decade of his reign, not really much happens by way of you know tragedy or drama or conflict or war. We read of a few But really, these years uh, for David, there is a rest. Now, there is much for us to learn in them, and so we look at chapter 21. It says that after three years of famine, David inquired of the Lord and asked God, Lord, why this famine? Now, God had said through Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy that if the people of God had turned their back on God, that one of the consequences of that would be that God would not send rain upon their land, that there would be famine. And so they have one dry year and then another. But then in the third, David decides something's going on here. And so he prays, being the king, he asks God, what's the problem? Well, God responds and he says to David, he says that the reason for this famine is because of something that King Saul did years ago, 60 to 70 years ago to be exact. Because he, in his zeal, and in his bloody house, meaning that he didn't act alone, sought to slay the Gibeonites. Now, if you were with us in our study of the book of Judges, you'll remember who the Gibeonites are. They were an Amorite tribe that deceived Joshua into making a covenant with them. You recall, they were to expel everyone from the land. And these Gibeonites were wise, and so they pretended that they had traveled hundreds of miles to catch up with Joshua, when really it was just over one hill. And they said, we have traveled for months. Look, our bread is stale. It was fresh when we left. Look at our shoes are worn out. They were new when we left. And here we are, and we just want to make a covenant of peace because we believe in your God. And they looked at the bread And the shoes, but they did not inquire from the Lord, and thus they were deceived, and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites that they would not destroy them. Not long after, they discovered that they had been deceived, but God said, No, you made a commitment, now you honor that commitment. You said you wouldn't destroy them, so now you can't destroy them. And so the Gibeonites were left to dwell amongst the children of Israel, only they became their slaves, servants. They would draw water for the service of the tabernacle. They would be those that would cut the wood for the offerings and the sacrifices. And they had a job to do, but they were to be left alive. But we're told that Saul, in his zeal, not for God, but for the people, his zeal for the house of Israel, that he desired to cut them off. And so he went in with some of his family members and they tried to wipe out the Gibeonites and they were unsuccessful. It was a car in the gym on senior picture day, so to speak. And they thought they got away with it. But God keeps track. And now God comes to David these years later. He visits the people with famine. And when David asks why, he says it is because of Saul and what he did to the Gibeonites in his attempt to cut them off. He murdered uh, some of them. And this is the, the reason. And so David calls for the Gibeonites. And he asks them, he says, what can I do to make this right? I mean, obviously, God has got your back. He's looking out for you. So what can I do as the king of this nation to appease your grief in this thing? And they said, well, we don't want any innocent bloodshed. That's not what we're about. We don't want any sum of money. We don't want to be paid off. None of that's going to appease this. What we will have is seven men of Saul's descendants whose guilt is born because of this sin, this thing. And we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. So David agrees. He spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the one who had been lame on his feet that he had made a promise to. But he took two sons of Rizpah, one of Saul's concubines, and five sons of Mirab, who was the 
oldest daughter of Saul that was supposed to be David's wife. You'll remember that at the last minute, she was given to someone else instead. She had five sons. They were raised by Michelle or Michael or Michal. If anyone knows how to pronounce that name, <laughs> I think God laughs when he sees us. We're like, Michael. No, it's not Michael. She's a girl. Michal. That doesn't make sense. Michelle, that's not how it's spelled. I don't know if you go through that. That's what, I, that's what happens to me when I read. Anyways, five sons, born to Miriab, raised by her. <laughs> David takes them and he gives them to the Gibeonites. They are hung up before the Lord there. Then we are told that Rizpah, who was the concubine of Saul, in deep grief, and there is no deeper grief than a mother who loses her children, no matter what the circumstances and no matter who they are. It says that she took the bodies of those two and then of those five, the seven in all, and that she spread out a a, a sheet, a blanket over them on the rock and waited for the rain to come. In a sense saying that if this is in fact what David is saying that it is, that this is of the Lord because and the famine is because of this thing, and if this is what God really wanted, then I'll wait for that rain to come. When David heard word of that, It says that he sent to Jabesh Gilead and he gathered the bones of Saul and of Jonathan and he brought them with the others and gave them all a proper burial together. It was a shrewd and loving move on behalf of a king who had to walk that tightrope of wanting to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord and sometimes having to do things that were a grief to people and yet try to still love on them nevertheless. And so David does that. The rain comes. It says that David, or I'm sorry, that God was um, appeased. He was entreated for the land and the famine stopped. Now, it's interesting and worth noting this, is that God never throughout the whole Bible commands or condones that the sins of a father be paid for by his children. If you read Ezekiel chapter 18, God is very, very clear on this point. He says, I never want to hear this proverb again in Israel. That because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge. In other words, the reason we have bad teeth is because our parents didn't take care of theirs. God says, I don't want to hear that proverb. The soul that sins, it shall die. If a father sins and his son is righteous, then the son will be declared righteous. If the father is righteous and the son sins, then the son will be declared a sinner. God says, each will bear his own iniquity. So God doesn't ever command or condone the death of a son because of the sin of the parent. So the obvious conclusion here is that these that died were in on the plot. They were a part of it. When you read those opening verses of the chapter, God indicts not just Saul, but his bloody house as well, meaning that these had a part to play in it. Uh, One more interesting fact before we um, apply this whole chapter here is this, is that the Gibeonites who were that Amorite tribe that was allowed to live amongst God's people. Although they were Canaanite and were supposed to pose problems, they never did. You never find any point where the Gibeonites are traitors or betrayers or stumblers of the people of God. It's amazing. It's an interesting thing. But they are close to the service of God and, uh, and they always toe the line. Interesting fact. Now, application. What's going on in this chapter? Uh, A couple of things to think about. First of all, I find it interesting that David didn't look at every single thing that happened around him as God's intervention in his judgment. A year of famine came. A second year of famine came. And David was able to say, well, these things happen in life. But it wasn't until the third year that David then said, okay, now we need to inquire and see what's going on. I think that's a good balance. There are things that happen to us in our life that are just the natural course of humanity. You lose a job, you break a bone, you have a health issue. Things happen to us, and not every single thing that happens to us in life is because we did something wrong and now God's getting back at us. We live in a fallen world. And the Bible says that God makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and it says that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And either one of those things, the sun and the rain, they can both be good or bad, depending on how much, when, where, all that kind of thing. And there are things that just happen in life. But I think that there is a time and a point that we look at what's going on, and maybe we need to say, Lord, what's going on here? Is there something happening where you're trying to get my attention because of something that's going on in my life? The amazing thing is that when we come to God that way in response to trials, if it is in fact God's chastisement in our lives, 
He's always faithful to tell us why and what is going on. James chapter 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives without upbraiding and without showing hypocrisy. God will answer that prayer, and then he'll help us to get things right where we're supposed to be. So David does that. Number two is this. The wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. In other words, these events happened 60 to 70 years in the past. And you might think, well, it's water under the bridge. God winked at it. The Gibeonites weren't that important to him, and so he overlooked it. Not so. He never overlooks anything. And he never leaves anything on his to-do list. Sometimes people mistake the patience of God for the acceptance of God. That because he hasn't judged or because time has passed and he hasn't intervened or he's allowing me to persist in a path that I kind of know isn't right, he must be allowing it. It must be okay with him. Not so. Be careful. Now, it's both good and bad that God makes sure that he clears out his inbox. Meaning, if we're not walking in a way that's right, understand that you're going to reap what you sow. And there will be consequences to your actions at some point. But it also is on the good side. If, the Bible says, you sow to the Spirit and you do what's right, then you will also be rewarded. That God will come through for you in that whole thing. He never overlooks. Nothing is water under the bridge for God. He carefully accounts for all and puts everything in its place. And finally on this, according to God's word, the shedding of innocent blood defiles the land that it was shed in. In Numbers chapter 35 Verse 33, God said to the people, he said, So you shall not pollute the land wherein you are. For blood, it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not, therefore, the land which you shall inhabit, wherein I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Though it took time, the judgment of God came upon them. There was defilement, pollution in the land because of the blood of Gibeonites, and God was going to, to, to intervene. I wonder what God sees when he looks at the United States of America today. If he looks at a land and he says that the shedding of innocent blood brings pollution on that land and brings my judgment upon that land, what does he see when he looks at us? That's a scary thought to think of. Now, in Jesus Christ, old things are passed away all things become new. And there is great mercy because of the cross, and God is able to have incredible mercy. The blood of Jesus is able to atone for the shedding of innocent blood. But if a nation or a people doesn't turn to God, then they bear that blood, and the blood can only be atoned for by the blood of them that shed it. So how will God deal with a nation like that? I think our nation is in big trouble. Without going into the statistics of murders and homicides and degrees and abortion and all those things that, that, that account for innocent blood in the eyes of God. What does he see when, I look at, when he looks at our land? I always think of that scripture in Chronicles that says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and repent and turn from their wicked way, then I will come to them and I will heal their land. I think we need to be in prayer for our nation, especially uh, in these days. Well, there's a few more things in that chapter, uh, verses 15 to 22. There's a few more Philistine wars. Four relatives of Goliath um, are, are also killed in that by some of David's mighty men. David is now forbidden. He's not allowed to go into battle anymore because he almost loses his life. And there is a six-fingered man. And if you didn't read it, you should. <laughs> I'm so tempted. How many of you have ever seen The Princess Bride? Show it. I just need to know because it's, I don't want to like outdate, but you know, getting to that age where people haven't seen some of these things, you know, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You, know, you kill my father, prepare to die. Chapter 22. The Song of David's Deliverance. It's one of the two Psalms that make up the ending of this book. The closest psalm in the book of Psalms that reflects what is written here is in Psalm chapter 18. And the heading for that is that in the days following David's deliverance from Saul. So going back to those days when David was first set free from that 
um, time of running and fleeing from Saul. And, and so here he, he, he gives the song and he testifies of what God did for him in, in that thing. In verses 2 and 3, David metaphorically identifies who God is to him. And listen to how he does it. He says that he is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, and my savior. Eight times he identifies God, and every single one of those times he puts his own self before that identifying mark. He doesn't say he is the or he is our. He says he is my. Then he explains how that happened. In verses 5 and 6, he explains that the waves of death were over him. That the floods of ungodly men surrounded him. That the sorrows of hell encompassed him. And that the snares of death were over his life. Four things uh, that describe the distresses of life. Now some people think that once you become a Christian, or if you give your life to God, that that means all of your problems are going to go away. That no longer do you have to deal with difficulty or distress or evil people. That God just takes care of everything and now you're just home free. He's your crutch and you're golden. How many of you have found that to be your experience in the Lord? I know I haven't. And David didn't either. He dealt with real difficulty, real tragedy, things that were heavy, things that he would call distress. It means that the squeeze was on him. He felt like there was a rope that was being slowly wrapped around him, starting at his feet and then moving closer to his head and slowly choking the life out of him. Often finding himself in situations where he thought that there's no way out of this. There's no way I can uh, survive, that, that, that there'd be anything on the other side of this. We go through that. If you have a mortal body, if you have a wife, if you have kids, if you have a job, if you seek to be productive in your life, and you want to stand against evil in this world, then you know what it is to live with distress. At some point, in some way, in some manner, we all have that whole thing. But what did David do when he was in distress? It says in verse 7, he says, Then I called upon the Lord, and I cried to my God, and he did hear. And then in verses 8 through 16, he describes in very poetic terms how God responded to David's prayer. It says that he shook the earth and the foundations of heaven. That fire and smoke came out of his mouth and his nostrils. That he pulled back the heavens like a bow, like a bow and arrow. And he came down himself riding on the wings of the wind. He gives a very high and exalted view of God and his care for David and how much God cared for him. And he talks how God would do anything that he had to do to deliver me in this thing. And this is what he did in verses 17 through 20. He says, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and them that were too strong for me. And he brought me into a large place and he delivered me because he delighted in me. That's what the Lord wants to do for every single one of us. In fact, he does that for us in the here and now, spiritually and situationally. But we're longing for the day when he does those things for us, literally. To draw us out of many waters. To deliver us from our strong enemy and them that are too strong for us. And to bring us into a large place and deliver us. And why? Because he delights in us. He goes on to talk about how he honored God with his behavior. Making most believe that he wrote this before his sin with Bathsheba. If you read those verses, that makes sense. And then he goes on to talk about how God directed his path. He said, he made my way perfect. He made my feet like hinds feet or the feet of deer. And if you've ever seen like mountain goats or mountain uh, deer running across the rock face of a mountain, it's something that will blow your mind because it kind of defies every law of logic and science. It seems like gravity should just take them right off the face of the side of the cliff, but they, they run as though they're as sure-footed as anything, not even looking down. And that's how David describes how God led his path. There's no logic that I should be able to stand and walk through the terrain that I'm in right now. But he held my steps. He made my feet like hind's feet, like the feet of deer on the side of a mountain. It says that he enlarged my steps under me. And I love that language. Because it's almost as if, you ever do this, you go hiking, and, and you've got to cross one of those little streams, and you're kind of looking at the rocks that are going to be safe, that you can walk on, that aren't going to move, and you're not going to slip off of, you know. And sometimes the rock is just barely big enough to get like the front half of your foot on. And the idea here is that he puts his foot down, and as he's putting his foot down, God kind of just makes it bigger. And so he makes sure that David's foot doesn't slip or fall off the place where it is, but it's being set down securely in the place that it is. 
David says, that's how God directed my path. There are two types of organized that exist. Now, I don't know if any of you are organized or consider yourself to be organized or are impressed with organization. I know that I am not organized, but I'm impressed with it. But I discovered this, that there are two types of organization. There is categoric organization, which is like label makers and folding things and proper place, you know, categorically putting things where they go. And then there's chaotic organization. One is organization to the observer, that's categoric. The other, chaotic, is organization to the individual. Meaning, I am organized, but don't you try to figure it out. Okay? God is chaotically organized. Everything that he does is with perfect order. He never misses a beat, nothing falls through the cracks, and he knows where everything is. But to the observer, you try and look at it and figure it out, and you never will. You'll go, how in the world are you going to make this and this and that work out? And how are you going to preserve me when I'm going through this path with this terrain? And God says, just watch. And you'll never figure it out. But God has this way of knowing just where everything is. He's so chaotically organized, but in his mind, categorically. He knows how to do exactly what he does. And that's what David is praising him for in this. You led my steps. You made my way perfect. You made my feet like hinds feet. You enlarged my steps under me. There was no way that this should have worked out. But you were able to make it work out because that's what you are. It's what you do. He then talks about his victory in battle and he concludes with this praise to the Lord. Uh, look with me at verse 47. It says, The Lord lives. He bursts forth into an exclamation of praise. And blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avenges me and that brings down the people under me and that brings me forth from my enemies. Thou also has lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king, and he shows mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forever. What's the application of all this as we try to look at David's song of deliverance and apply it to our own experience? Number one is this. Is that God cannot be your anything until you experience him in your life yourself. David sets the heading for this psalm by saying, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, and my savior. But see, he couldn't be those things to David unless David had to go through the things where God would show himself to be those things. The same thing is true for you and me. We desire to have a relationship with God. We want to know him the way that David knew him. We want to know him to the fullest extent of that we can understand and comprehend the size of this God. But it's impossible to understand in your heart who God is unless you go through the things in your life and then experience God in those things, bringing you through those things. It's possible to have just a head knowledge of God. But when you have a head knowledge of God, he's someone else's savior. He's someone else's deliverer. He is conceptually a rock and a fortress and a tower of defense and a deliverer. But when you go through the deep waters, when the snares of death en en encompass you about, when the billows and waves of it are over you, when the distresses of life are there and God comes through and reveals himself in it and carries you through it, on the other side of it, you get to say, he is my deliverer. He's my savior. He's Jehovah Jireh, not because Abraham said so, but because I've experienced him as that in my life myself. He's Jehovah Nisi, not because Joshua and Moses won a great battle that day, but because I've seen God go before me and my enemies and he's brought me through the difficult days of dealing with difficult people. And there's a big difference between God being the God of the scriptures and God being the God of your life. But it doesn't happen because you have a head knowledge of scripture. It happens when you go through the deep waters and you experience God in it. We pray often, God, get me out of this situation. But God's desire is to bring you through the situation and reveal himself to you along the way. We spend so much time and energy trying to avoid trouble. But what we really should be doing is calling out for God in our troubles and then experiencing the grace that he gives in it. There's a couple in our fellowship um, that went through a living hell about a year ago. 
I mean, they were hit on every side. Growing family, financial problems, major health problems in their children, uh, insurance lapses and deductibles, out of vacation time. I mean, big, big, big problems on every level. Family, extended family problems, all the rest. And I just remember thinking at that time, like, Lord, just remind me to pray for them constantly. And, and, and I watched, and God carried them through it, and I ran into them um, just this past Sunday, and I just had a little bit of a conversation with them. And I looked at them, and I saw something in their eyes and something in their face and something in their family. And I said, you know, it's interesting that it was a year ago that, you, you know, you went through all the things that you went through. And I said, I remember how difficult that was. I remember thinking, I don't have the ability to go through what you went through. But think about this. Now... You're through it for the most part, you know. But all the things that God did for you and revealed of himself to you are with you forever. The trial is over, but what God did in your life is with you now. It's yours. No one can take it from you. God, give us the grace to do what David did, that in our distress we would call upon him and that we would praise him and thank him in the storm. I'm not up here as one pontificating and saying that I always get this right. I wish I did. But God, give us the wisdom and the grace to experience him in the things uh, that we go through. Um, Okay. Chapter 24. Now, I know. I skipped one. But I told you before that these are not chronological And so I don't have to do them chronologically, and you'll understand why we finish with chapter 23 when we get there. But skip over to chapter 24. What we have here in this chapter is David's sinful census. It begins by telling us that the Lord saw an occasion against Israel. That there was something going on within the nation that was displeasing to the Lord. And he wanted to intervene, he wanted to act and chastise them. It doesn't tell us exactly what it was. But at the same time, God also saw something in David. Later in his life, there was a pride. There was something there that God didn't want to be a part of David's legacy. And so it says that he moved David to number Israel, or to take a census of Israel. Now, two things. First of all, that was forbidden. They weren't to do that. Kings were not to count or consider or account of their own strength. They were to leave that in the hand of the Lord and trust in him for their victory. And so what David wants to do is wrong here. The other thing I want to mention is this. Is that in 1 Chronicles 21, which is the parallel passage to this text here, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and that he moved David to number Israel. Well, wait a minute. Here it says that God moved him. In Chronicles, it says that Satan moved him. Which is it? Yes. (laughs) See, a lot of people think that Satan and God are uh, counterparts. That God is the good and Satan is the evil. God is the yin, Satan is the yang. And that they are kind of equal forces, one for light and one for darkness. That's not true. The Bible teaches that Satan is a fallen angel. He was created as a servant of God who was lifted up in pride, rebelled against God, and sought to usurp or overthrow God's authority in heaven. He was cast out because of it, but he still is accountable to God. He cannot step one foot over the boundary that God sets before him, and he has to report of all that he does. If you read the first three chapters of Job, the book of Job, you'll understand that completely. He cannot do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. He can't step one foot over it. But if God gives him the leeway, then he will. And thus, God actually uses Satan to fulfill his purposes. It's one of those things that we won't fully understand how it works. You know, oftentimes people say to me, well, the devil this and the devil that. And and, and it doesn't move me much because I know the devil. (laughs) And I've never in my life given him one ounce of credit even though I've been tempted to and I've wanted to and say the devil did this and the devil did that, but I can't, I can't bring myself to do it because the devil can't do anything unless God gives him permission to do it. Struggle with that. Go ahead, wrestle it through. In your own situation where you think the devil's beating on you, yeah, God gave him permission. You say, wait, a loving father? Why? How? What? I don't know. Let's move on to the text and we'll look at how this uh, uh, applies and we'll we'll see it um, in this whole thing. So, 
if the Lord stands against him, David does this uh, thing. Um, James, I want to read this verse. James chapter 1, it says that God does not tempt us, nor can he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is led away by his own lust and enticed. So God saw something in David. There was a pride issue that was going on in David, and God gave Satan permission to exploit it so that God could remove it. And this is God's grace, because he's going to remove from David something that would be a horrible legacy for him should it have been left unchecked. So David wants a military census. Even Joab, his general, who's not the most spiritual man in David's bunch, he resists David. He says, David, this isn't right. I mean, God number, multiply Israel a hundred times what they are, and even let you see it. But don't do this. This isn't the way we roll. You're not supposed to do this. But it said that David's word prevailed over Joab, and he sent them forth to the census. It took nine months and 20 days, but David's men made it from Dan in the north all the way through all the cities of Israel to Beersheba in the south. And they came up with the numbers. There was 800,000 fighting men in Israel. Thus, we find it was a military census. He wanted to know his strength. And 500,000 fighting men in Judah. And as soon as David receives the report, he gets the list with the number on it. The Bible says that his heart smote him. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but I have. When you do something that you know you're not supposed to do, that you step over a line that God clearly says, don't step over this line, and as soon as you step over the line or get the thing that you wanted, something happens inside the heart. The pleasure, the desire, the glory that you thought you would gain from it immediately is turned to grief and pain because you know you did something that was wrong. David's heart smote him and it says, I have sinned greatly. That's what he says there. Now, what was the sin of David? And why does he respond so uh, egregiously to this? That, oh, this was such a great sin. First of all, he's setting a precedent for future kings to disobey the command of God. Well, David got away with it. David numbered the people. He knew how many people were in his military. And God overlooked it. And so it just becomes the way we do things in Israel now, even though God said don't to do it. The other thing that's wrong about this is that he's setting a precedent for future kings that success and strength is based on human resources and on numbers. And it never is with the people of God. Our strength is never in our resources or what we have or how many people we have. Our strength is in that we are the people of God. That's our strength. And that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that he's our rock No weapon that's formed against us will prosper. That's our strength. And that was the example that God wanted David, the first true king of Israel, to leave as a legacy to all other kings. So David realizes he's in big trouble here. It's interesting that David's response to this sin is greater than any other response to any other sin in his life. I have sinned greatly and done foolishly, he said. He didn't even respond that way with Bathsheba. Why is it that David, this is so serious to David? I think for the reasons I already stated, but one more, I think this. I found this to be true in my life. The longer I walk with the Lord, the worse sin is. Have you experienced that? Even small sins, the closer you get to the light, appear exceedingly dark. And David here, this thing maybe doesn't seem as bad to him as what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, the murder one and the adultery. But David's been walking with the Lord a long time, and he knows better. And he feels the weight of this conviction again, and he goes, Ah, what an idiot. I can't believe I did that. What a fool I was. Well, the prophet Gad comes to David. We haven't seen him for a long time, not since David ran from Saul. And Gad says, David, uh, God's going to give you a choice. You can pick your punishment. Don't you wish you got that option too? (laughs) He said, you got three options. You can have seven years of famine on the land. You can flee from your enemies for three months, or you can have three days of disease, pestilence come upon the land. You choose. And David said, I'm in great distress. This this is too big. I can't believe that, that this is even happening, David says in this thing. And he basically leaves the choice up to God. He said, I'd rather fall into the hands of God. The only thing he asks is, I don't want to fall into the hands of men. So he says, just not option two, please. Three months fleeing before our enemies. But God, you choose. And I think David in his heart chose, though it's not perfectly clear in the text, what he got, which was the three days of famine. And here's why I think that. Because seven, did I say famine? I meant pestilence. Seven years of famine probably wouldn't affect David. 
I mean, he was a king. He had resources. He would be provided for even if seven years of famine happened to the land. In fleeing from their enemies, David would be protected. He would be put in isolation. He would survive. He'd get through. But disease, that's a level playing field. You could be a king. You could be a peasant. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be afflicted with disease. And thus David chooses. That's what David also receives, that penalty. He's the one that's guilty. Even though David doesn't know that God is also judging Israel for something in this. God's in this. This isn't just David's consequence. This is also because of something going on uh, in the land that we're not perfectly told of. And so, it says, From the time appointed, from Dan to Beersheba, the pestilence came. It was swift. It was fast. 70,000 men died in that famine from Dan to Beersheba. And it says that the angel that was with the sword drawn, swinging it over the land, entered into Jerusalem. And it was there that he entered into Jerusalem that God said, now stop, that's enough. And he opened David's eyes, and David physically saw with his eyes the angel with his sword drawn over Jerusalem. And it says that he was standing by the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, or Ornan, as he's called in Chronicles. And the prophet comes to David, and he says, David, thus says the Lord, go to Ornan, buy his threshing floor, and offer there a burnt offering, and make atonement for the sin in that place. And so David goes down to Ornan, who is a Jebusite, Aruna, and he goes to him and he says, I'd like to buy your threshing floor. Now the threshing floor would be at the highest point of the city, and we find that this is the city of the Jebusites, which is Jerusalem. So the highest point, flat area, on a high point in Jerusalem, and David comes to Aruna and he says, I need to buy your threshing floor and I need to buy oxen for a sacrifice. And Aruna says, no, no, you take it. You're the king, ministry discount. You can have it. Don't worry about it. And David says some of the most profound words in all the Bible when it comes to sacrifice and offering. He says, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. How often do we give to the Lord that which costs us nothing? David wouldn't. He pays the full price for that threshing floor and for the sacrifice. And he offers a burnt offering to the Lord there. And it says that the plague was stopped interesting, uh, uh, immediately. This place, this threshing floor, happens to be on the top of Mount Moriah. It's the very place where Abraham, hundreds of years earlier, had offered his son Isaac. Not really, but almost. In that story where God typified the sacrifice of Christ. It will also be the place where the temple will be constructed. This piece of real estate that David buys will become the ground, the platform, where the temple ultimately is built. And on an area of that same mountain, not far from that, will be the place where Jesus himself will be sacrificed. So what's going on here? God wanted it to be known to all of his people that the plague is stopped when a blood sacrifice is made by a king. And it was a clear foreshadowing of what Christ would accomplish in that place. The plague of sin would be stopped when a king would make an offering, not of a bull, but of his own self. It was impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sin, but Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit once forever as an atoning sacrifice for us. The plague was stopped when the king offered it. What's the application of this chapter for us? Here it is. It's a verse, it's Colossians 3.3, 3, that you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ. The root issue in this chapter is that David became interested in his own strength. He wanted to feel confident and lean upon the resources that he had at his disposal. David's whole life up to this point had been lived in dependence upon God. He slew a lion and a bear with his bare hands. He had no resources. He refused Saul's armor when he went into conflict with Goliath. He spent years in the stronghold with nothing, with nothing, no weapons to his hand, no food, no provisions, no money. He would write in the Psalms, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. In another place, he would write, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. What's going on with David at this point in his life? Even Joab looks at David and says, David, you taught us that we're to depend upon the God, upon the Lord. 
Why are you now interested in how strong your military is? I believe that there is a danger, especially once you've become established in life, to want to rest on the resources that you have. What we fail to recognize is how frail those resources really are. No matter how much money you have saved up or how many assets or whatever you've got stored up or you've built up, one sickness that comes upon you or upon your family can wipe out the whole thing. One circumstance, one government default, which could be coming in the not-too-distant future, can take out everything you have. And God wanted David to see that one angel is stronger than Israel's whole army because how many angels were there? God opened his eyes. He saw the angel. David, have you forgotten what I can do with one angel? Yeah, you've got uh, 1.3 million fighting men in your army. Well, I can take out 70,000 with one angel. Who would you rather trust in? Your resources? Your intelligence? Your education? Your business model? Your ingenuity? Your entrepreneurial spirit? Don't rest in it. God gives you the power to get wealth and to provide for yourselves. It is better to trust in the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Don't rely upon your resources. Rely upon the Lord. One more thing on this chapter before we move to our last chapter tonight is this. If you figure out what God is doing, please let me know. In this chapter, God is dealing with Israel as a whole. He's chastising a nation. He's dealing with David's pride and the legacy that he'll leave behind. He's confounding the kingdom of darkness. He's revealing the strength of his hand. He's procuring the place where the temple will be built. And he's doing all of that at the same time. Sometimes people come to me with their list of things that are happening in their life, and they ask, what is God doing? And I go, are you serious? I'm having a hard enough time trying to figure out what God's doing in my life, and now i got to know what he's doing in your life too? I don't know what God is doing. Here's what I do know. I know that he can take out seven birds with one stone. And I don't know how he's doing it or what the outcome's going to be, but I can promise you this, that when he's done, you'll like the outcome. And that's what we see here in this chapter. It's beyond our understanding, and it's really good. Chapter 23, our last chapter as we uh, look at this, it begins by saying that these are the last words of David. Now, they're not the last words of David that he says before he dies, because he's going to say more words, as we'll see as we move into 1 Kings. What he's saying is that these are the last recorded or prophetic words that were spoken by David, that he spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are significant words, and and they're very significant in the context that we have them here. It's verses 1 through 7. It begins with David's autobiography. Notice what he says about himself. Look with me at verse 1. He calls himself David, the son of Jesse, the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice the things that he chooses to use to describe who he is. The son of Jesse. Raised up by God, anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He doesn't call himself a warrior or a giant killer or a king or a great leader or one who left a good legacy. He leaves all of that behind and he looks at the bare bones of who he is. And he realizes, you know who I am? I'm nobody. I'm the son of Jesse, a poor man in one of the least cities in all of Israel. But God grabbed a hold of my life. And he took me out of the sheepfold and he put me in the palace. He anointed me. But my accomplishments are not that I killed Goliath or that I wasted armies or that I subdued the Philistines or that I built an army or that my story is written in the Bible. He says, my proudest accomplishment is that I was able to sing songs for God and they're recorded for the people of God to sing forever and ever. The sweet psalmist of Israel. That was his autobiography. His authority, he says in verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. And here's his message. The final message of David, what he wants to resound and echo 
throughout the chambers of eternity that came from his mouth at the end of his life. He says in verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He that ruleth over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. Oh, that we had a Congress and a Senate and an executive branch that would read and heed this verse. He that rules over men must be just or fair and rule in the fear of God. That God is the ultimate authority. And then he says this, He, the one who rules justly and in the fear of God, that he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Someone needs to put that on a plaque and put a really nice picture behind it and put it in their bathroom wall because it's probably one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. But that's the description of, he says, what it is like when someone who is fair and that rules in the fear of God rules. Now here's the interesting thing about that description. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, although my house be not so with God. In other words, this isn't the way it is yet. Now, I don't know of a king who was more fair and more just and more fearful of God than David that ever lived ever. And yet David looks at his life and he says, this isn't me. I'm not talking about myself. Though it be not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure for this is all my salvation and all my desire although he make it not to grow in other words what he's talking about is he is looking forward to a day in the future when not he or his son Solomon or the kings that will come from them but when Christ the covenant that God made with David that Jesus Christ would come from his loins that he will be the just one that will rule in the fear of God and that when he rules, it will be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. That that's the day. He says, that is all my salvation and all my desire. That after all the life that I've lived, that's what I'm looking forward to is the day that I wake up and Jesus is ruling and reigning from his proper place and all things be fulfilled. But then he contrasts that. In verse 6, he says, but the sons of Belial shall not or shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. The, same, the word same is in italics there. It means it's not there. It means in the place. That there is a kingdom of darkness that both rules and that will rule upon this world until Jesus Christ comes. And that nothing but bramble and thorns will come from it. I wanted to show a clip to you here. And I knew that I wouldn't have time to. And I don't. So I was right. But if you get a chance to look at Joe Biden's commencement speech for the Air Force Academy that he gave last week. It will send a chill down your spine. He talks about the new world order that is upon us. And he talks about no longer there being an America, a United States of America, but one great America that goes from the north of Canada all the way to the southern tip of South America. You watch it. You see the days that we're living in. They're described here by David. They cannot be approached by men, but they will end in the fire of their place. Those are the last words of David. Then, verses 8 all the way through the end of the chapter is a listing of David's mighty men. The men that were with David uh, that were the chief captains of his general. It begins with the top three. Um, Adino uh, who was an Italian man who slew 800 by himself. After him was Eliezer who would not run away or retreat in the battle and so he fought a whole troop by himself and it says that he fought so hard and so long that his hand clamped to the blade and that the blood of the slain became so thick that he couldn't tell any longer where his arm stopped and where the sword began. It became one with the sword. And then of Shammah the third, who was left to guard a ground of lentils or barley, but he wouldn't abandon the post because it was God's land, and thus uh, God wrought a great deliverance, and one man defended uh, against a whole troop. And those were the top three of David's mighty men. And all of them were an example of those who would not yield territory that belongs to God. 
that this is God's land, this is God's territory, and though I be the only one that has to stand upon it, I'll stand on it and I'm not going to give ground away. I think that's a great example for you and me. We'll never have the opportunity, most likely, to fight 800 men. And most of us would probably die. I think if I had to fight one, I would die. I don't know how to fight. But I do know how to stand my ground when Satan comes looking for territory that's been claimed for Christ within my own life. And each of us can carry that same legacy that though the whole world run away, yet by the power of God's Spirit in you, you don't have to. Let your hand cling to the blade. The next three, David's mighty men that are mentioned, are unnamed. Um, and we'll come back to them in a minute um, because I want to just close with their, their little uh, scheme there that they did. But then there's the next three. Two of them are named. One is Abishai, who slew 300 men. The other is Benaniah, who it says killed two lion-like men from Moab. And he went and when he couldn't find any more lion-like men, uh, he saw a lion that was in a pit on a snowy day and he needed the adventure. So he jumped into the pit and he fought the lion and won. That's cool. I mean, (laughs) really, I, I mean, how many of us would fight a lion but then fight a lion in a pit, but then fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I mean, this guy is like uh, uh, kind of my hero. I like him, you know. And then it says he slew a mighty Egyptian with his own spear um, again. And then the third there is not mentioned. Most likely, most believe that that was probably Joab uh, that's not mentioned there. And the reason that he's not mentioned is because he murdered Amasa. That was, that was murder one. That was pure ambition, wanting his job back, and he killed an innocent man. Um, basically, and, and he's going to lose his life for that a little bit later on. Uh, he kind of becomes disqualified, though he kept his job, so to speak, not listed amongst David's mighty men otherwise. Um, and then the rest are named in verses 24 through 39. I actually had fun trying to pronounce those names. You might enjoy that too um, if you have a chance to do it. But there's a few worth mentioning. In verse um, 34, we read of Eliam, who was the son of Ahithophel. Uh, that was Bathsheba's father. Eliam was Bathsheba's father. Uh, Hethophel was her grandfather. That was David's counselor. We learned about him last week. And then in verse 39, we read about Uriah the Hittite. Uh, He was the one that David had killed. And it's interesting that he's listed here amongst David's mighty men, one of the 37 of David's top soldiers uh, here. And so it's significant to us that that is listed um, there. There's one thing I want to show you as we close, and we're we're landing the plane now. The landing gear is down, so don't get nervous uh, um, too much about the time. But in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, in verses 1 and 2, it talks about when David first fled into the cave. And it says that his brothers and his parents fled to him there. And it says that everyone who was distressed, everyone who was discontented, and everyone who was in debt fled to David there in the cave. That he received them. And it says that a band of 400 men in all gathered themselves to him. David got all of the misfits of society. Those that were indebted, those that were embittered, those that were discontented and distressed. They came to David and David became their leader. What's amazing to me is what we have in the text before us here is what those men ultimately became. They didn't stay discontented, indebted, embittered people. but Rather, they became men of renown doing things that you and I would dream of doing on our best day. But my question as I look at that and consider it is, what is it about David and his leadership that made these guys the kind of men that they became? I think that the answer is, is, is in it here in verse 13. Look at verse 13 of, of this chapter. And, and look at the little story it tells us here. It says that three of the 30 of the chief men went down. And they came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam. So this is when he's fleeing from Saul. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in a hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David grew up in Bethlehem. He watered the sheep in Bethlehem. He knew that was the best water that existed anywhere he'd ever been. And he longed for some of the water from that well. So verse 16. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. 
that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but he poured it out unto the Lord. Here's why, verse 17. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And these things did uh, these three mighty men. We see a request that was spoken compulsively. We see a courageous act of three of David's unnamed mighty men. They went and they got the water and they brought it to David. They saw water that was gotten by love. David saw blood that was gotten by risk. These men hazarded their lives. This is the blood of these men. And thus he poured it out on the ground. Now, why did he do that? I mean, would you honestly feel a little bit offended? If you were one of those guys, you went and risked your lives to get David a glass of water and he brings, you bring it back and he goes, I can't drink this. You'd be like, ha, oh. it's even worse. What was David doing? Why did he do it? Here was the message that came from David's heart. He was more interested in who these men were to him than what he, they would do for him. He was more interested in them personally than he was in their service or what they did for him. I want you to consider for a minute with me the son of David, Jesus Christ. He was the root and the offspring of King David himself. And he was also in the hold. Just like David was away from his father's house in a strange place, so Jesus also was away from his father's house in a strange place in the world. And who does he call to himself? Those who are indebted, those who are distressed, those who are discontented, those who are spiritually bankrupt. And he calls us to himself and we come to him. But what does he want with us? Why does he call us to himself? Because he wants to make you what David's mighty men became, valiant. Kings and priests unto our God, a name, valiant men. But why? Is it so that you can serve him? Is it so that he can have Oompa Loompas and someone to cut God's grass? You can, you know, sign up on the back table for whatever it needs that needs to be done for God. And that's why God saved you. He wants to make you into something mighty for himself. No. See, that's not what David was interested in either. He didn't want mighty men that would fight his battles. That's what he got. He loved these men. And he was more interested in them than he was in what they could do or ever would do. It was them that he was interested in. And that's what Jesus demonstrated for you and me. He poured out the water and the blood. The spear was thrust into his side. And it says that water and blood came out. See, he gave all of his life and poured it out in a demonstration of his love for us. That's what he did. And the message that he was sending was the same message that David sent. Look, I'm not interested in what you'll do for me. The risking of your lives, the hazarding of yourself. I'm interested in you. The reason I saved you, it's not because of what, it's because of who. I love you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. And I love you not for what, but for who. I love that. That's what he wants from us. Not, not what. It's you. He loves you. He pours his life on the ground. Now, when we receive that kind of love, what kind of a response does it produce in us? Oh, we say, Lord, I love you because you first loved me. And I'm willing to take up my cross and die to my thing for you. And if I have to stand against 800 men, Lord, I'm already a dead man. I might as well be already dead. I don't think Shama thought he would live when he guarded the beans. He didn't care. I'm going to guard the beans because that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't think Adino thought he would live against 800 men. He did. See, the same thing happens for you and I. We lose our lives in Christ and we save them and keep them for eternal life. We don't die when we think we will. We take up our cross, but nevertheless we live, said Paul. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And we become like David did, where we can say, he is my rock, my shield, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength, my strong tower. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you tonight for the word, for what you tell us, for what you speak, for the testimony of David's life, which is a trophy in your showcase of grace. 
Not there, Lord, so we can look and say how marvelous I will never be. But that we might look and say, Lord, take my life. And do in me what you did with him. But what you want to do for me. Father, we just tonight lay our lives down at your feet, at your altar. We pray that we might be completely yours. Sanctified and set apart. Committed completely to your will. We pray tonight, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us afresh and anew. Not that we would have power to serve you, but that we would experience your love afresh. Tonight, Lord, that you would give us a vision of your heart towards us. That we would see the cross, perhaps in a way that we never have before. As we consider the blood and the water pouring out upon the ground. And realizing that it wasn't for you. At any moment, Lord, you could have called angels down from heaven. But you chose instead to give up your life and lay it down for us. And now, Lord, may we lay our lives down for you. So meet with us here right now. And as we sing this last song, O Lord, may it be more than words. May it be a song from our heart. For you truly are, O Lord, our rock, our fortress, our strength. Bless us tonight, Lord, with your presence and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.